So let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth in that hymn we've just sung. We know that personally I am his and he is mine. We thank you that being a Christian is not some religious duty, but it's a relationship, a relationship with God the Father and God the Son. And we thank you for the giving of your word to reveal yourself to us that we might know you and love you and serve you and we pray that you would now open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law and teach us your ways and open the truth to us we pray for we ask it in Jesus precious name and for his glory. Amen. So we're looking at our continuing study on the English Bible and particularly from the point of view of evidence from the manuscripts. And so we're building up to that. We've had an introduction. We've looked at God revealing himself through revelation. We're partway through our study on inspiration. So for those following through on the notes, we're beginning on page 34 after a little um, time of review. So we looked at what is inspiration. So inspiration refers to the way in which God gave us the Holy Scriptures. Having revealed himself to man, God then had his revelation recorded in written form. And so the Bible itself is very clear as to its origins and its inspiration. Inspiration is the process by which divine revelation was written down for posterity. So we looked at biblical statements concerning inspiration. We have two outstanding scriptural references. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And the key word there is moved. And we looked at that. And then we have 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the key word there was inspiration. And so we needed to define inspiration. And by inspiration we mean that the Holy Spirit moved the human writers of the Bible in such a way that they recorded the very words and sense of God through, though couched in their own literary style. And because of all the false teaching around, we need to redefine biblical terms very clearly these days. And we need five terms or phrases to actually fully define what we mean by inspiration. So if someone says to you, I believe in the inspiration of scripture, uh, you've got to dig a bit deeper and find out what do you mean by that. And so we looked at confluent inspiration. And by this we mean that the Holy Scriptures are the product of two agents, the human and the divine. And the word confluent means two streams joining and flowing together such as two great streams like the Missouri and the Mississippi, which come together in the United States at St. Louis, or in Australia at 
we have the confluence of the Darling and the River Murray. Then we have verbal inspiration. And by this we mean that the very words of Scripture are God's words. Inspiration goes beyond the concepts and overall message of the Bible to its actual words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then we have plenary inspiration. And the word plenary means extending to all parts alike. And by plenary inspiration, we mean that all of the Bible is inspired and every part of the Bible is equally inspired. So the New Testament is not more inspired than the Old Testament or the words of Christ more inspired than the law of Moses. No, it's equal. And then we have inerrant inspiration. And inerrancy means the Bible is without error in its recording. And the word inerrant means not liable to prove false or mistaken. And inerrant inspiration means the Bible was written down correct in every detail. Then we have infallible inspiration. We have some interchange. Sometimes people use it, but infallible inspiration builds on inerrant inspiration. And infallibility means the Bible is without error in its teaching, not just its recording, which it needs, but in its teaching also. So it's incapable of teaching deception. So we need those words to fully define it. Then we looked at theories of inspiration, and not everyone holds to those above definitions of inspiration. And there are several theories of inspiration that fall under three main theological positions. So we have the conservative theories of inspiration. So the spectrum of conservative or orthodox belief generally acknowledges the truth that the Bible is the word of God. Amen. But they then qualify that by some theories such as dynamic inspiration. And this view of inspiration is otherwise known as mechanical or it's a robotic dictation. It holds that the Bible writers were mere passive instruments, mere machines, insensible to what they were doing. We don't hold to that. And then there's conceptual inspiration, otherwise known as thought inspiration. This view holds that only the thoughts, concepts and messages of the Bible are given by inspiration. Sometimes you find whole Bible um, translator organisations have this as their philosophy. They don't believe in a word-for-word translation because of it. And so this position readily accommodates the use of different versions of the Bible since they all basically say the same thing. That's not true. We believe in the verbal inspiration. The very words themselves were inspired by God. Then we have modernistic theories of inspiration. Modernism is the fruit of unbelieving liberal rationalistic theology. It is identified by the assertion not that the Bible is the word of God, but the Bible contains the word of God. So somewhere in between the covers of the Bible, we have a message from God. And so you put man as the authority rather than the scriptures because man decides on a whim, what's inspired, what's not. And then we have neo-orthodox theories of inspiration. Attempting to straddle the divide between orthodoxy and modernism, 
Neo-Orthodoxy believes the Bible is a medium for revelation. Scripture is no longer a reliable guide unless God chooses to use it in a person's life. So they bring in the mystical. It's not absolutely authoritative. It's mystical. And the Bible is not is the word of God or contains the word of God, but the Bible becomes the word of God somehow mystically to you personally. Very experiential. Then we looked at the inspiration of the Old Testament. The doctrine of inspiration does not just rest upon those two proof texts we looked at, but is found throughout the pages of Scripture, either as direct statements of the fact or by implication through being taken granted by the writers or in the narrative. It's very clear. And over and over, the Old Testament claims to be the word of God. And there are several avenues of proof for this, and we had a look at some of these. So the Old Testament writers were prophets, and a prophet was a mouthpiece for God. And regardless of his occupation in life, the Messianic prophecy, for example... In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 22, shows that the true prophets could only speak as God gave them his words and message. And uh, you know in the notes there's a revision necessary. It mentions Deuteronomy 19. It just shows you the fallibility of man in recording, doesn't it? But not so the scriptures. And uh, these prophets recorded the very words of God. And then the Old Testament writers quoted other Old Testament books and verified them as scripture. And the Old Testament books, because of that, were reverenced by Israel. They had a very special part. And Israel itself had a very special part in the preservation of the scriptures. And then their direct claims for inspiration in the law, the prophets, the writings which are the three uh, main divisions of the Old Testament. So all of these, so Exodus 20 verse 1 clearly says, God spake all these words. They're not invention of man. And then we come to the new material. The New Testament itself declares the inspiration of the Old Testament. So there's this confirmation so the greatest testimony to the Old Testament inspiration is found in the New Testament. On numerous occasions, the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, exalts the Old Testament as the word of God, or accepts the Old Testament as authoritative. There are 332 direct quotations and references to the Old Testament in the New Testament, and up to, or over in fact, a thousand quotes, references and things alluded to in the scriptures there. And we see that testimony covering the Old Testament as a whole entity in its primary application. Uh, Romans 15 verse 4 states, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. It's pointing to the whole of the example of the Old Testament. Many things were written down, good and bad, as opportunities for learning so we might learn and have hope out of it all. So the errors of people like David 
as well as the positive things were written down for our learning. Not to follow the errors, but to learn from them and avoid them. And then we have phrases such as the scriptures used 52 times. Or it is written 133 times, referring back to the Old Testament writings. And that it might be fulfilled is used over 30 times. And the oracles of God are mentioned four times. And it's all an indication of the acceptance of the authority of the Old Testament as inspired writings and as the word of God. And then there are particular sections of the Old Testament. We have the law, the prophets, the writings. Those three divisions cover the whole of the Old Testament. So we look at the law. Just picking one of those examples, we'll pick on the Matthew verses. Matthew 5 verses 17 and 18 states, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfil. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That's Jesus speaking, of course. Sermon on the Mount. He's there, sorry, um, he's just authorising the law. It's all going to be fulfilled and only the word of God could ever be fulfilled. Then we have the prophets. Matthew 26 verse 56 states, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. A lot of old time prophecies fulfilled coming from the prophets. Then we have the writings. Matthew 22 verses 43 and 44 state, He saith unto them, How then doth David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And Jesus was quoting from Psalm 16 verse 10 and acknowledging David in writing it and also uh, the authority of it all. And then we have particular books of the Old Testament referenced. Some 20 out of the 24 of the Old Testament uh, books, the Hebrew um, Bible, the Old Testament, our 39 books get assigned into 24 divisions and they were reassigned when the modern Bible was developed. Uh, for example, First and Second Samuel are one, one book. And Judges and Ruth was one book. So 20 of them are directly quoted and then the other four, either the events in them or else other things in them were alluded to and so all of the books of the Old Testament are referenced in some way in the New Testament. And then we have the testimony of Christ himself to the inspiration of the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ accepted all of the Old Testament as the very word of God. Luke 24, Jesus walking with the two people on the road to Emmaus, one of them Cleopas. And there in verses 25 to 27 he said, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study. Going back to the book of Moses and the prophets. And then in verse 44 and 45, he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, which was representing of the the writings concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. They could have written some books, couldn't they? Jesus quoted the Old Testament. So in Matthew 4 verse 4, we have Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 quoted. Jesus verified the Genesis account of creation there in Matthew 19. He quoted from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and linked them together. There's no gap. And Jesus accepted the Genesis account of the flood there in Matthew 24. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't a fantasy, it's reality. Recorded that in Luke 17. And Jesus also verified the story of Jonah, Matthew 12. It's a picture of Jesus as the Son of Man, oh, sorry, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be, picturing his death, burial, and resurrection three days later, according to the scriptures. And Jesus often quoted from Isaiah. Jesus acknowledged Daniel as a prophet there in Matthew 24. And Jesus believed in and taught the divine inspiration and infallibility of the Old Testament. Matthew 5, verse 18, John 10, verse 35, and Matthew 24, verse 35 states, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The scriptures will be fulfilled and have been fulfilled. And what's left of them will be fulfilled. And this is why we say that Christ and Christianity stand or fall with the Bible. This is the main reason for the Bible being constantly attacked by Satan and the enemies of the gospel because you discredit the Bible, you're actually calling Jesus Christ a liar. And that's serious blasphemy. And each one of the above-mentioned points has been attacked by the higher critics at some time. But Christ began and ended his public earthly ministry there in Matthew 4, verse 4, and Luke 24, 46, with the words, It is written, in reference to the inspired Old Testament that we have today. Then we have the inspiration of the New Testament. And the writers of the New Testament books claim to have received divine revelation. Paul, numerous times, claimed to have received the revelation of the mystery, of the gospel, and he recorded it down. We won't go through those because we'll come to another passage soon. And then there's Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, for example, says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables 
when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These weren't fables of men. These were true accounts inspired of God recorded. And the inspiration of the New Testament rests upon three factors. Firstly, the promise of Christ. Prior to the development of the Bible, or the New Testament part of the Bible, we have Christ pre-authenticating it. There in John 14, verse 26, he said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. We often use that in the following one as a general promise for ourselves personally, but the reality is, the context is, this was given to the apostles and the prophets. And they were given the Holy Spirit to teach them all things and to bring to remembrance the things of Christ so that they could be recorded for posterity. And John 16 verse 13 said, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. He's not talking to us Christians as general, though we can have it as an application. He's talking to the original writers of the New Testament, the book that was to come. The Holy Spirit would specially guide them into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he shall show you things to come. John 16, verse 13. Then we have the internal testimony of the New Testament itself. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, refers to Paul's writings and equates them to Scripture. Peter said, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Paul's writings were equated with other scriptures. And in 1 Timothy 5 verse 18, we read, For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. We have an Old Testament quote to start it, but we have a New Testament application as well. Scripture. And in Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 5, we have a key passage dealing with the inspiration of the New Testament. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me to you, would, how that by the revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. This revelation that God gave to Paul is now made known, and praise the Lord we have it in the Word of God. Recorded and preserved. 
So in the passage we see Revelation being referred to, verses 3 and 5. Verse 3 says, By revelation he made, that is God, made known to me. And verse 5, Now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And we have inspiration coming through as well. As I wrote. So the revelation then recorded. That's inspiration. And then we have preservation in verse 4 coming through. When ye read. These words were to be recorded for posterity. And so we can read them. And we thank God for his preservation of the word of God. And then we have the claims of the New Testament. Luke, if you want to know um, how to uh, assign the chronology of the Gospels and you compare Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, go to Luke because he wrote it in order and with perfect understanding and you can work it through in a logical sequence because... Ruth, uh, Luke wrote it with a perfect understanding. doesn't mean the others weren't perfect. just means that Matthew, for example, takes a different approach sometimes and puts a lot of parables together, whereas they're not sequential. They occurred at different times, but he chose to do that. Whereas Luke then helps you to sort them out. This one occurred here, this one occurred there, etc. And other scriptures... Romans 16 verse 26 says, But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And 1 Timothy 4 verse 11 has the phrase, These things command and teach. You don't command and teach things for posterity that are just the words of men. This is the word of God. In Revelation 1, verse 1, starts with the words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, that's John, and, uh, sorry, John's recording, but Jesus Christ is the one it was revealed to, walking among his candlesticks, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. This has come from God. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And evidence of, for inspiration, we have internal evidences, and by internal evidences, we mean evidences from within the Bible itself that bear testimony to the inspiration and the authority of the book, the Bible. And such evidences include details of event beyond human knowledge. The Bible gives details of such things as creation, the words of Satan, and what was in the heart of certain people, things that no human could possibly know about. Only God could reveal these things, and so we stand that these are the truth. And then the remarkable unity of the book itself. The Bible is a book written on three continents and over a space of about 1,600 years, 40 generations, by over 40 human writers of diverse backgrounds and occupations and under different circumstances, yet it has a unique doctrinal and structural unity and there is one theme 
and there is no conflict. The only conflict is in the mind of man. And we have supernatural doctrines in the Bible. Many of the doctrines in the Bible are contrary to the human nature and most certainly wouldn't have been written if the Bible were just a man-made book. For example, we have the doctrine of God. Compare the Bible's presentation of God as an infinite, sovereign, triune, holy and loving person to the various deities concocted by men. Often the gods are very fickle. And the God of the Bible altogether transcends our finite intellect. We wouldn't have invented him. We couldn't have. So God had to reveal himself. And then we have the doctrine of man. The Bible's portrayal of man as base, vile, sinful, corrupt and depraved will never be so written by a natural man. And even the hideous sins of David and the shameful failures of a Peter are mentioned. And they could have been covered up, couldn't they? Then we have the doctrine of sin. Natural man minimises sin and exalts the world. Well, the Bible does the exact opposite. The fact that hell is de denied by natural man shows that we have a Bible that man would not write and could not write. And then we have the doctrine of salvation. Man seeks salvation through works. If the Bible were a human book, the plan of salvation would be by works of some kind. But the Bible teaches salvation through the shed blood of the Son of God. And then we have fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is the only book ever produced in which many, many prophecies dealing with the Messiah, Jews, Gentiles and world events are to be found. In this fact alone, the Bible is unique. And over two-thirds of the Bible was prophetic at the time it was written. And much of this prophecy has already been fulfilled to the letter. And this is the strongest internal proof of inspiration. Messianic prophecies alone are remarkable. Over 300 prophecies of the birth, ministry, passion, resurrection and ascension of Christ have already been fulfilled. And in one 24-hour period, the day of Christ's crucifixion, approximately 21 detailed prophecies were fulfilled alone. And the statistics behind that, the so-called odds, are amazing. Then we have external evidences. And by external proofs, we mean the things outside or apart from the Bible which bear evidence to its inspiration and authority. And there are many proofs, including the Bible's credibility. The credibility of the Bible has to do with the truthfulness of its narrative or its inerrancy. And Bible-believing Baptists approach doctrine from the standpoint that the Bible is truth. And unbelievers will not accept this premise, so it becomes necessary to actually prove in some manner that the Bible is what it claims to be. And the question is, is the Bible narrative trustworthy? And the test is, of course it is, but the test is compare Bible statements with known facts. And there are two main areas of consideration. Firstly, scientific credibility, and then archaeological credibility. Scientific trustworthiness. The Bible always harmonises with established true scientific knowledge. 
It mentions many everyday scientific facts without contradiction or absurdity. I won't, there are a lot mentioned here. We'll just look at a, a few brief, very briefly. Biology, for example, talks about the genetic unity of the human race. And as they went through that genome, human genome project, they came back to just a few individuals behind the whole human race. And Ecclesiastes talks about the body being made from dust. And you look at all the elements in dust and you have sufficient to make a person. You go to Leviticus 17.11, the life is in the blood. You see the importance of the blood and that's a true scientific fact. You look at astronomy, Isaiah 55 verse 9, the universe is expansive, it certainly is. I can't get over the fact that God made so many stars. Lord, a few would have done me. But the more they look, the more they see. And the stars are too numerous to count. They give up after billions and billions. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 41, in talking about this glorious body that we're going to inherit, this corrupt body, sorry, <laughs> is going to be more glorious just as stars differ in their brightness or glory one from another. And you look into this, the stars at night and you see, whoa, that's bright and that's dull and etc. They certainly do differ in glory. And then there's geophysics and geology. The earth is spherical, it rotates. Sorry, it's not flat. You go into physics and you can find some passages there in keeping with the laws of thermodynamics, the first law and the second law. We have no time to explain any of that at all. <laughs> then you go into archaeological trustworthiness and we did some of that and we had uh, um, the pastors and Brother Paul come back from the Bible land to re-emphasise all this. There's a there's no archaeological discovery that ever contradicts the Bible. There's interpretations, but the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. There's topographical trustworthiness, and that has to do with the layout of the land. It's evident that Bible localities are where the Bible indicates they were, and the stated times for the journeys were feasible. I just saw in a news feed that I get um, more about Jericho, how it was a fortified city in the beginning, many years ago. Well, that's what the Bible says. How did they find it? They went to where the Bible said it was. Then there's geographical trustworthiness. Any visitor to the Holy Land will find desert where the Bible says there is desert and mountains where the Bible says there are. Then we have ethnological trustworthiness. The family tree of the nations in Genesis 10 and the various migrations mentioned in the Bible are verified. The origins of certain people, their customs, their kings, and times of servitude and victory are continually being verified by archaeological discoveries. And then there's chronological trustworthiness. Archaeological discoveries of nations contemporary with Israel have been given much supportive evidence from biblical events um, and the order of events and the circumstances involved as well. And there's historical trustworthiness. Many of the events in scripture, as well as persons, places and nations have been verified by inscriptions and monuments. 
Then we have the Bible's transforming results. Through the unaided reading of the Bible, men and women have been born again and become new creatures in Christ. Amen. Drunks have been made sober, harlots made chaste, lives ruined by sin have been made whole again. The Bible has indeed changed the course of nations as no other book. And all of us here can testify to the reality of that personally. The Bible does change our lives. And then we have the Bible's inexhaustible treasures. Unlike any other book, the more the Bible is read, the more it reveals. And each week, thousands of sermons are preached, scopes of books come off the presses, and all proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ, and we will never plummet the depth. Never. And then there's the Bible's honours promises. Anyone who follows what the Bible says receives what the Bible promises. God is faithful to his word. And the Bible's mysteries, they remain mysteries to the ungenerate mind. Some parts of the Bible have been written to show clearly the way of salvation, simple enough so that any person can receive the truth of the gospel. However, Many parts of the Bible can only be understood by the child of God. They are foolishness to the unregenerate person. And the Bible's unique adaptability for translation. Unlike many human books, the Bible loses nothing when it is properly translated into other languages. Its message is still the power of God unto salvation. So any person in any tongue can come to a saving knowledge of the truth. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And then we have the Bible standards, holy but workable. The Ten Commandments were the basis of the British and United States law. They underpin our constitution and our law. Whenever man seeks to make laws contrary to the Bible, problems arise. We know the reality of that in our own land as our heritage is continually chipped away. We have the problem redefining marriage. God says it's between a man and a woman. Well, the law says nowadays it's a man and a man, a woman and a woman, a man or a woman. Who cares? Well, I do and God cares. And absolute confusion reigns. Little children have been told in schools, oh, Don't worry about being a he or a she, like you are. Just, you know, whatever you want to be, that's what you can be. Well, even the evolutionists tell us that the transgender athletes are men posing as women or women posing as men. They are not magically transformed from one sex into another. Biologically, they are what they were in the beginning. And it's just confusion. And the health implications when you go that way, oh, hey, you can't stop this person becoming, this man becoming a woman. Let's pour money into funding, you know, hormone treatment so they can look like a woman. They still sound like a man, but they act like a man. They think like a man, but, you know, pour it in. And uh, don't tell anyone that... uh, So many of the patients in heart clinics these days are the results of people trying to be what they aren't because there are consequences. 
So in summary, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for all of life. And scripture includes the entire Old Testament as attested to by the writers and affirmed by the New Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is God, God the Son, and who created the heaven and the earth, who is the living word and has given us the written word. And it's also... The scriptures include the entire New Testament as attested to by internal and external evidences. So as the psalmist testifies in Psalm 119 verses 160, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Amen. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. We thank you that we can say, thus saith the Lord. This is the word of God, revealed, inspired, so it's recorded for us and preserved so we can know your truth to us. Teach us to love it, to apply it, and to lift up the one who is the living word and whom it reflects. And may we give our Lord Jesus Christ the glory, for we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.